Thank you. I'm happy to be here at Bet Munai again, especially because my daughter is here, but not only. I'm uh, always glad to teach Parashat Pinchas. Why? Because everything in that parasha is outside the box. <laughs> and it's unusual. If we look at the Torah, the five books of Moses today, there is very, very few things that are relevant to us. Maybe ten commandments in all the Torah that are relevant to us today. The rest are institutions that don't exist anymore, practices that are impossible to practice today. Uh, they, we don't have a temple. We don't have priests, uh, kosher priests at least, that can serve in the temple. We don't have the red heifer that can purify us from the impurities of dead and, and leprosy and, and other impurities. And we don't keep the holidays the way they were commanded in the Torah because the holidays, all of them have sacrificial practices, especially the Passover. We have memories, memorial feasts of what's in the Torah. But the greatest value of the Torah for us today is to learn about how God works, the character of God. That is the essential, relevant factor of studying the Torah today. But if we look at the, the previous parasha and parashat Pinchas, and even the next parasha and the book of Genesis, we find out that God doesn't work the way we work. And not according to our laws, and definitely not according to our culture, Western culture. Parashat Pinchas is actually not a standalone parasha. You have to understand Pinchas from the previous parasha, because the previous parasha tells us the background of what's going on. And what is going on? Bil'am, who is one of the forever bad guys in the Bible. From the book of Numbers all the way to the book of Revelation. He is mentioned twice in the first chapters of Revelation as one of the people who caused evil to happen in the congregations of the Lord in the seven churches of Asia Minor. But not only there. In rabbinical Judaism, Parashat Balak and Parashat Pinchas are key to understanding how evil really works. Balak is innocent, not innocent. And Bil'am is blessing and cursing at the same time. It looks good, what he says. He, pra he, he praises Israel more than anybody else in the whole Torah. We start every synagogue around the world, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, starts the service every Shabbat with the words of Balaam. Matovu alecha Yaakov mishkenotecha Israel. 
That's what Balaam said. So here we are, starting the service of, of, of every Shabbat with the words of an evil Gentile, <laughs> an idolater. Isn't that strange? I think it's strange, but I think it's all wonderful. Because when your enemies praise you, that praise is the most valuable praise. When your friends praise you, shut one eye and believe only half of it. <laughs> so what happened? Why is Balaam such a bad character throughout the whole Torah and the prophets and the Psalms and the New Testament? Here it is. Balaam, in, in, much to our dismay and to my dismay, has a communication with God. He talks to God. God talks to him. God gives him instruction, which is a lesson for all of us to learn, especially for Jews, because we think that God is our private God, that he is our possession. But God is the God of all of humanity. And yes, he chose Abraham, but he didn't choose Abraham because of his blue eyes. He chose Abraham in order to save the world. Not only save Israel, but save all the nations. Three times God tells Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because God is the God of the whole world. And as much as he loves Israel and blessed Israel, he also loves the rest of humanity. We know that from the New Testament very clearly. One of my favorite passages of John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So no one will perish, but everyone can have everlasting life. The world. You know, we, in the prayer book, we have several times, You have loved us above all the other nations. It's true. But it's not all the truth, because God loves the whole world. And so as much as he revealed himself to his servants, the prophets of Israel, he, we learn from this story, he revealed himself to Bilam and maybe to others as well like to Cyrus, the king of Persia, and like to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of Assyria. God, God communicated with, with his children. Sometimes he told them bad things. Yeah, When he had written in the days of Daniel the, the, the statement in Aramaic on the wall, it wasn't exactly a compliment. But he does communicate with the world, not only with Israel. And the story of Bil'am is a good story to start. So Bil'am says, I will say only what you tell me to say. I will do only what you tell me to do. Sounds good. And he actually lived up to it. Only after his donkey talked to him. <laughs> yeah. 
He lived up to it. He did what God told him to do. But his greed, his character took the best of him. And after he blessed Israel, these wonderful blessings, he gave Balak the advice. The weakness of these people are beautiful women. If you want Israel to fall, send them all the beauties of Moab and Midian, and uh, they'll fall. So the previous parasha, Hukad, starts with the fact that all Israel sinned, not one. And God ordered the plague. The plague was for everyone to kill his relatives, his family, who sinned with these pagan women. Thousands died already. And the, the, the more that died in this plague, the more idolatry entered. These women didn't only bring their sex with them. They brought their idols with them. The idol of Baal Peor is one of the most cruel and one of the most strange and evil worship that you can imagine. The only thing that I can point to you to, so you can understand a little bit of what was going on is Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. The scenery there in the Temple of Doom, in that cave with the fire in the middle of it, the worship that they were worshiping there, that's similar to what was going on in the worship of Baal Peor. Human sacrifices, yes. Public sex, yes. And our parasha starts with the fact that a prince of Israel, the, the prince of the tribe of Simeon, is not having sex in some backward woods is having sex at the entrance to the tabernacle in front of the whole leadership of Israel. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't an issue of passion. It was a pre-planned defamation of Israel and the God of Israel. That's what it was. And Moses is standing there. I want you to picture it. Moses is standing there silent, the rabbis say that he was, he was doing like this. What can I do? He is at a loss to know what to do because this act, abominable act, was taking place in the holy precinct, in the holy courtyard of the house of the Lord. It wasn't only something against Israel. It was an act to show that the God of Israel is an impotent God that cannot do anything to stop that evil. So Pinchas, a young man from the house of Aaron, a priest, takes his spear and spears Zimri and Cosby all the way to the ground, nails them to the ground. Now, that's not legal. 
You cannot execute somebody without a court of law, without judges sitting and weighing the pros and cons. We have a case uh, two years ago in which a soldier in the Israeli army witnessed a terrorist kill his best friend in the same unit in Hebron. And the terrorist was wounded and laid on the ground, and he had a, a long black coat over him, and the suspicion was that he has an IUD strapped to his body. That when the soldiers come near, he can push the button and explode himself and kill more soldiers. So this young man shot him right in the head. The Israeli army sued him. And he just recently came, he said 18 months in jail for shooting a terrorist that already killed one soldier. But because he was on the ground, it was considered not legal. And this soldier says, I suspect that he has an IUD strapped on his body. And he was wiggling. And I was afraid that he will explode us. And the officers that were around him. No, it didn't help. The Israeli court judged him in jail 18 months. Pinchas didn't get judged. Not only didn't he get judged, he was praised by God. He didn't follow the rules of the Torah that says by what, two or three witnesses you shall judge somebody, and especially in capital cases. He was praised by God. If God hadn't praised Pinchas in public, Moses would have taken him to court. And he would have been punished for what he did, maybe severely punished, according to the Torah. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. That's the judgment of the Torah. But Pinchas was praised by God, and later on you find out that he was appointed to be the chief of staff of the armies of Israel. Why did God praise him? He took the law into his own hand. He didn't ask permission. He wasn't in charge of executing judgment. There were higher people than him. Moses and, and the leadership of Israel was right there watching all this happen. He took the law into his own hand. Not according to the will of God as it is expressed in the Torah. He did it outside the box. But everyone in the Bible that brought change in Israel functioned outside the box. No one functioned within the frame of the law. Who's the, the most important woman in the Bible? Who is it? Somebody say. Who? Loud. Sarah, Miriam, no. A Gentile woman, not Ruth, not Rahab, Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, if it wasn't for her breaking the laws of Egypt, 
breaking the laws that her own father made. There would be no Israel today. There would not be Yeshua, Mashiach. There would be no Torah today. That Gentile princess of Egypt that broke the law of her own father and the laws of Egypt and saved one Israeli child. One child from the tribe of Levi. She is the most, because without her, there would be no exodus. There would no, not be giving of the Torah. There would not be the land of Canaan inherited by Israel. There would not be Yeshua Mashiach. That one Gentile woman with one act outside the box. Lied to her father. Lied to the wise people of Egypt. And adopted that Jewish boy. She knew he was an Israelite the minute she opened the box. The minute she opened the box, how did she know? I don't know. In the movies, by what he was wearing. According to the Jews, not by what he was wearing, but what he, what he was missing. <laughs> that woman acted outside the box. Moses himself acted outside the box. He was 40 years old when suddenly he knew he was a, an Israelite. But suddenly, it touched his heart, and he said, I have to do something for my brothers. And he goes out of the palace, a prince of Egypt, and kills an Egyptian. Also, without court, without judges, without juries, he takes the law into his own hand, and he kills the Egyptian. Because he sees the Egyptian hurting one of his fellow countrymen. Outside the box. Now Pinchas takes the law into his own hand, kills these two, and God says immediately after this in our parasha, the beginning of Pinchas saved Israel from the plague. He saved Israel from the plague. I stopped the plague, the killing within Israel. 24,000 people died as a result of this horrible pagan paganization and sexual immorality that was going on in the camp by the advice that Bil'am gave Balak. But Pinchas is not the only one. Let's look at, at, at another person that saved Israel. Another Gentile woman. Yael. Yael, the wife of the tribe of the Canaanites. The Canaanites came out of Egypt together with Israel. They were among the mixed multitude. A tribe, a Gentile tribe. That settled in the land of Israel. In the Jezreel Valley. And Sisra, the general of the, the city of Hazor. In the north of the Sea of Galilee. One of the big, big cities, ancient cities, is actually the only city in Israel that we know corresponded with Mari, with where Kuwait is today, in the Persian Gulf. Letters in Mari were found 
from the king of Hatzor, and one of my teachers still digging there for 40 years looking for the library of Hatzor. I hope he finds it before he dies. He's older than I am. But uh, a big city, one of the biggest cities in Israel, sitting on the highway that connected Egypt, the land of Canaan, and Assyria, Damascus. So that big city of Hazor sent their general with their chariots to the valley of Jezreel, to the valley of Armageddon, to fight the Israelites. They had chariots, but God had rain. And rain and agricultural field makes wonderful mud. Last time I was in the Golan Heights in the, right after the rain, the mud was so thick that it, it came halfway up my ankle. The chariot of Sisera, the general of Yavin, sunk in the mud. He left the chariot, ran on foot. He came to the tent of this Gentile woman, Yael. In your Bible says that her husband was Heber. It's because the people in the King James time didn't know much about the geography and the ethnography of the land of Israel. Hever means band, group, community. And she was not married to Heber. She was not a, a married woman. But she invited Sisra to come in. He asked for water. She gave him milk and then gave him a headache. <laughs> Pinned his head to the ground with a tent peg. She also acted outside the box. She also didn't wait for the court to tell, yeah, you can kill Sisra. And she also is praised as one of the saviors of Israel. In chapter 5 of Judges, Deborah, who was the only female judge in the book of Judges, praises her in her, the song of Deborah is equal in its importance to the song of Moses from Exodus 15. She's praised for what she did. She saved Israel by killing Sisra with a tenth peg. But one of the heroes of Israel, King David, after whom the Messiah comes, the lineage of the Messiah comes from King David. The messianic promise was given to King David. He also didn't do anything inside the box. Everything he did was against the law. The law, King Saul and his armies looked for him for 20 years. He even went to live with the enemies of Israel, with the Philistines. Just last month, the city of Tziklag was marked, found. The dig has been going on for a long time but they didn't find anything to, to identify as Tziklag. That's the city that the Philistines gave David and his men to live there and to function from Tziklag in the rest of the territory of the Philistines and in Judea. King David didn't act within the law. The law was King Saul. And David did Almost every, even after he became king, by the law. 
by God himself. He didn't act according to the law. Almost everything he did, he wanted what he wanted to do. Just this last year, three times, I visited David's palace. It's not open to the public yet. It's in the city of David. I visited David's palace, and the strange thing in that palace is that the basement of that palace, there was a very small but fully equipped temple. God told him, don't build me a temple. What did David do? He built himself one under his house. I'm not joking. I'll show you pictures. Yeah. David was also a person that was creative in his relationship with God and his relationship with women as well. Yeah. But he's the only king of Israel that God says, I love David. David is my beloved. We could go on in our history. People who change the world are people who are outside the box. Are people who, they don't necessarily have to break the law. But they know what is right intuitively. And what is good for Israel intuitively in the Yom Kippur War where Israel was 18 days within the war and still losing the battles. One of our generals asked to cross the canal with his column of tanks. The chief of staff told him, don't do it. The minister of defense, Moshe Dayan, told him, don't do it. What do you think he did? He crossed his name is Ariel Sharon. <laughs> he crossed, and crossing, he saved the battle. It changed the, the war in favor of Israel. We need to learn that as disciples of Yeshua, we are not servants of our culture. We are not captured by our surroundings, and what other people do or don't do. If we want God and the Holy Spirit to be our guide, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit, not to what our neighbors are doing, not to the culture of the time. We have the text. Bil'am, listen to this, Bil'am, that pagan evil person, when God told him, don't do it, instead of cursing Israel, bless Israel, he blessed Israel. But look how God works also. God told him first, don't go. I don't want you to go with Balak. He started to go. Anyway, who changed his mind? No one. Even the donkey talking didn't change Balakta. God said, okay, you want to go? Go. But don't curse, bless. God changed his mind. Not Bil'am changed his mind. God changed his mind. He said, okay, I'll turn the evil to good. You want to go? Go. But bless Israel. That will be a good lesson for Balak, the king of Moab. 
And that's what he did. That's what he did. So, my dear brothers and sisters, I don't know how long I have, but I suppose that I'm supposed to finish at 1 o'clock. Is that right? Yeah? Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about Nativia in Israel and the Roy Israel congregation in Jerusalem. We also never went down the stream in the easy, broad highway that everybody goes. We always went upstream in the narrow road that is hard, that is difficult. Because we felt that what is right is right, and we don't have to please anybody. We're not a part of any denomination, any foreign mission, or any Israeli mission. We were the first to be independent. And when we started keeping the Passover, the first holiday that we started to keep, everybody condemned us. When we started keeping Yom Kippur and fasting on Yom Kippur and praying from a regular Orthodox Siddur, everybody condemned us. Don't you know that Yeshua died for your sin? You don't need to fast on Yom Kippur. With the fact is that, that even today, most of the congregations of Israel don't celebrate Yom Kippur, don't celebrate hardly any holiday. Passover has entered in already. So most of the congregation already celebrate Passover. They do a, a little seder. But they do it a la Americana. Short version. Just half of the Amidah, or less than half of the Amidah. The Amidah regular is a lot longer. It's got a lot, a lot more important things. You know, I'm not condemning anybody, but I'm just saying that even in Israel, that's the situation. Yeah? But Nativia actually went against the stream, and I can say this. Today, Nativia is probably the flagship of Messianic congregations in Israel and maybe around the world. You know, our, one of my disciples is David Stern. He wrote all of his books under the auspices of Nativia and with the help of many people in Nativia. Yeah. Another one is Elchanan ben Avram. Anybody know the, the, what Elchanan has written? He has written a few things, but very important things. Messiah, son of Joseph, Messiah, son of David. Uh, uh, small book. You can get it for free from our webpage, from the Nativia webpage. Uh, and, and the books that I've written, also several books, more than the two commentaries, also a huge commentary academic of uh, the book of Acts, the, the book of Galatian commentary, and the book of Acts published by the Hebrew University Press, which is a very prestigious university and a prestigious publication, publishing house. So we are also the first to start humanitarian work. We started more than 20 years ago. Uh, a Polish businessman came, young man, 35 years old, said, I want, God told me to help you. What do you need? So I asked my secretary. My secretary then was an ex-Marine from the American Army. She was the secretary of the top general in Korea, uh, South Korea, for four years. So she, she was a believer from the Washington, D.C. area, immigrated to Israel. 
So I asked her, Chedva, what do we need? She said, look, we're running a deficit of about $1,000 a month. So I told this businessman, you know, it would be wonderful if you could help us with the deficit. What is it? $1,000 a month, I don't give $1,000 a month. Less than $6,000 a month, I don't give anybody. I said, give us 6000 why not? <laughs> he said, but I have conditions. He said, I started in Ukraine many, many soup kitchens. I'll give you 6000 if you promise to start a soup kitchen. OK, for $6,000, we'll start a soup kitchen. So we started. The first week, we had 18 people, homeless and poor people, not believers. It grew into hundreds and hundreds of people. We couldn't handle it anymore. Not financially and not actual the, the situation. And our lawyer said, you can't do that. You don't have insurance. If somebody gets stomachache and, and gets sick from it, he could sue you. You would lose a lot. Stop this. So our young people went to the city of Jerusalem, to the Department of Welfare, and talked to the director of the Department of Welfare. Now, you have to understand, the city of Jerusalem has got 57% of the seats in the city council are held by Orthodox Jews. Not Orthodox like American Orthodox. Orthodox like Masharim, you know, the black coats, the fur hats, even in the summer. They wear those fur hats at 35 degrees centigrade, 90 degrees, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, I wouldn't put my finger under the hat. Maybe a coody would bite me <laughs> from the heat. It's a place to spawn. Anyway, so uh, that kind of orthodox sit in the city council. And here we are. We are working already more than 10 years with the city council, with the Department of Welfare of the city of Jerusalem. They now take all the responsibility. They send us the people, knowing that we're believers in Yeshua. They send us the people. Nobody can receive food unless he comes with a letter from the city of Jerusalem. And we change the public every six months. They send us a new list. Some of the same people, if they're in bad, really bad shape, they continue. But there's new people. So we've been feeding and giving a good name and a good reputation over the years with literally thousands of people. Many of them, and most I would say most of them are Orthodox Jews. We have four different levels of kosher because our Orthodox Judas from that branch will not eat, if he's a Sparty, he will not eat the, ortho, the kosher of the Ashkenazi rabbi. If he's Ashkenazi, he will not eat the kosher of the Spartic rabbis. We had one guy come without a letter saying that he's got six children at home that are hungry, there's refrigerators empty. So uh, Yuda, our uh, director, uh, and the, place, the person who is replacing me from uh, the leadership of, of Nativia, he said, here, here is the pantry. You've got all these foods. Here is the freezer. 
you got all this meat. We have four levels of kosher. So he ex examined the kosher, examined the kosher. It wasn't his brand of kosher. <laughs> he left there with a pack of toilet paper, with no food, leaving his children hungry. That's how it is. So Jerusalem is, from that point of view, is in bad shape because of the disunity among religious Jews that believe in the same Torah, in the same God, in the same prophets, in the same Tanakh. Yeah. But the situation in America is not, a, not much better. Not much better at all. You've got the same situation with Christian denominations. And much to my regret, you've got the same situation among Messianic Jews. Yeah? We've got to understand that if we want to win the battle, we need people like Pinchas, and like Yael, and like King David, and like the prophets of Israel, that all of them were outside the box. The priest and the leaders of Israel beat up Jeremiah for speaking the word of God. Threw him in the jail, then threw him in the in a well. Amos was kicked out of his city by the priests of God because he spoke the word of God. We have to understand, folks, we need courage. We need dedication. We need tenacity to stick to God no matter what the rest of the world around us says or does. And that's on every issue. And I want to encourage this congregation. I know that probably you never heard that kind of a lesson. That is the right thing to do sometimes when God leads you is to step out of the box. Listen to God, don't listen to men. Listen to God, don't listen to tradition. Listen to the word of God rather than what the culture dictates. One of my uh, disciples was a, a major law professor at Pepperdine. He came to me in 1974, the same year that David Stern came. David Stern came at midnight without a suitcase, with nothing, wearing shorts, flip-flops, and a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and we were already asleep. And my mother was sleeping in the living room. She saw him, she said, in Bulgarian, she said, don't let him in. He's a hippie. <laughs> That's what she said. So I said, they, you know, it's a bit strange, but I'll talk to you tomorrow. She said, can I sleep in your house? I said, no. I'll take you. I'll pay for your hotel. He said, no, you don't need to pay for my hotel. Take me to a cheap hotel. So I took him to the cheapest dump in Jerusalem, in the heart of Masharim, where all the drug addicts and the prostitutes go to this hotel. He stayed there a whole week. But because he came without, without a suitcase, without a toothbrush, just he hopped a plane in Los Angeles, landed in Tel Aviv. He said, I need to go shopping for some clothes. I said, OK, let's go. So I took him to a cheap place. He said, OK, I want seven shirts, three pairs of shoes, three pants, seven socks, seven underwear. 
I was surprised. I thought he had no money. But he's been together with us since 1974. And he's very sick now. I ask you to pray for him. He's got advanced, advanced stages of Parkinson's disease. His son works in the office, in the Nativia office. In fact, all the men that work in our office are born and raised in our congregation. They're, I disciple their parents. But it takes, if we want to win this battle, we have to be faithful to God and not allow the culture and the surrounding atmosphere dictate to us what is right, what is wrong. We have the word of God. We do our best to go by the word of God and ignore the world around us because that's the only way we can win. And what is the, the end game? The end game has two legs. One is salvation of Israel because if Israel gets saved, according to Paul, the whole world will get saved. And the second one is the return of the Messiah to Jerusalem. That's the second leg that we have to stand on. All the rest is negotiable. May God bless you and bless this congregation, bless the leadership of this congregation. Thank you.